Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbara, and the thousands of people past and present who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thank you, Chris Anthony. Welcome to our show. Our guest today is an innovator, a leader, and a pioneer in so many fields, particularly animation, recording, television. And it's a great pleasure to have her with us here today to give us insights into how those things work just the way they worked at Hanna-Barbera, which, by the way, she lives in walking distance of right now, the building itself. So she can behold that cool building on 3400 Cahuenga. Um, mm -hmm. My guest is the wonderful Bambi Moe. Thank you for being with us, Bambi. Greg, thanks so much for having me on and thinking about being on your show. Uh, we know each other, obviously, through our connection with Disney and your brilliant book, Mousetracks, which you co-wrote. And Tim it's Hollis, so yeah. I always yes, like to mention Tim Yes, exactly. That's the beauty of today's podcast is that we can actually credit the people who deserve the credit, you know? Yes. Yeah. But anyway... I think you had interviewed me for that book maybe about 17 years ago or so. Easily, and, yeah. and here's the thing. When I heard you were writing a book about Hanna-Barbera, I knew we were in great hands because I know that you approach things so thoroughly researching. And so it kind of prompted me before talking to you today to go back and really look at the Hanna-Barbera shows I discovered something which I'm really excited to share with your listeners. Please. Well, you know, I'm known for my work with Disney, but what I realized was how many of the shows that Hanna-Barbera produced and created were a part of my childhood and without a doubt, looking back, completely influenced me in my future work without me even realizing or knowing that. And I'll give you specific examples. In my opinion, I don't think anybody created main title themes better than Hanna-Barbera. Here's the magic of what they were able to do in such a short amount of time, oftentimes a minute long at maximum. 
what they did was they set up each show telling what we were about to see. And when you would hear the main title theme, if you were in the other room, you knew exactly what was coming. Mm -hmm. And the melodies were hooky and that's melody is one thing. But what I'm talking about is when I would hear the beginning lines of the Flintstones theme or the Jetsons theme, the list is too long to go through all of it, but they told stories. They told us, you know, meet George Jetson. Meet George Jetson. The Flintstones, a modern Stone Age family, and it sets everything up so beautifully. So I would think that my little child self, I had the privilege of absorbing all of that. And ultimately that was a part of what helped me in my career at Disney in terms of working in television animation and having theme songs and really fighting for good theme songs to kind of do the same thing that those early shows on Hanna-Barbera did for me. I'd like you to give the little golden book story of Bambi Moe, and then let's talk about how you make a theme song. That's the sort of thing that it's a fascinating thing. It carries so much of the weight of the program. So let's start, though, with an introduction to the fabulous life and career of Bambi Moe in 60 seconds or more. Ah, well, again, this is going to sound funny, but I literally grew up watching Hanna-Barbera shows. Johnny Quest, McGilla Gorilla, Huckleberry Hound, Jetsons, Flintstones. I mean, these were all shows that were part of my childhood DNA. My Saturday morning viewing, my after school viewing. I love these shows. And it was funny because I also forgot about the fact that I love later shows like the Banana Splits, for example. Mm -hmm. I thought the Banana Splits were fabulous. And shows like Josie and the Pussycats. I mean, who didn't want to be in a band? I mean, how cool is that? That was me as a kid growing up. That was my animation vocabulary. I learned... No, you don't even think of it because later on, you want to know about how you approach creating a main title theme. Well, they come about in different ways. Sometimes it can come about by virtue of having a song that already exists and then adapting and modifying it for your use. Mm -hmm. That happens. The other way is that you have a script or a story idea or you have an outline and you think about, well, what do you want to convey to tell the audience ahead of time what this show is about. For example, it's like kind of the Gilligan's Island approach. Yes, absolutely. To main title themes. Some of the main title themes can introduce your main characters. They could tell a little bit of backstory in a very short amount of time. That's really how I approached our main title themes when I was working at Disney. But again, I look back on the Hanna-Barbera Library of Scooby Dooby Doo, mm-hmm. where are you? I mean, come on. <laughs> you'd hear it playing and you'd run in and sit down and sit down in front of the TV and probably have your TV dinner. Remember those? What they did also, and I think a really smart production company does, is be aware of what the audience is doing while they're watching. Gary Marshall said this once in an interview. He said, people don't watch TV like this. And he showed staring. He said, people watch TV like this. And he's turning around, fiddling with the drapes, saying, maybe we should get new drapes. I don't know. And then he says, mock? What's a mock? He says, you have to catch them with the audio and the video and all that. And I think Hanna-Barbera did that real well. Well, they did. A show like Top Cat, the main title theme, 
you're being introduced to these characters mm -hmm. and aspects of their personality. I think that they did it so well and so consistently. I went to school in Burbank, California. I grew up in Long Island, New York, and I came back out to California again. Speaking of Burbank. Yes. And this is not so much in the weeds as one might think, because this show influenced a lot of Saturday morning cartoons. What was it like to live in Burbank when Ronan Martin's Laughing was on? Oh, wow. Ronan Martin's Laughing. You know, I don't know that I've talked about this, and I didn't realize this again until I looked at the entire list of Hanna-Barbera shows. But my father, okay, was a toy inventor. Oh. My father worked for different companies. Initially, he worked for Ideal Toys. And when Ideal Toys was making things like Mr. Machine yeah. and right and Mousetrap, mm -hmm. my dad got to work with Rube Goldberg on Mousetrap. Wow. Um, you know, I didn't know that, Bambi. Yep, 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 yep. You know, it's interesting growing up as the kid of somebody who invents games and toys. If he invents a game, I used to hate it because you could never beat the inventor. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy Clock was another one. Yeah. Anyway, it worked at Ideal. He also worked at Mattel. He had actually helped to design the light, bright spaceship for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, cool. Yeah. There's a whole list of things. He also worked on a lot of the Hanna-Barbera shows in various capacities right. in terms of the toys and the things that were associated with them. Like Fantastic Four, he had developed some things for that. And you just brought up Laughing. And I'll come back to that. My father met George Slaughter, the creator and producer of Laughing. My dad loved to restore Mercedes. It was his hobby. He loved mm -hmm. old Mercedes and he would restore them. And George met my dad and saw my dad's 300 SL Mercedes and asked him if he could use it in one of his Laughing episodes. He had a special one coming up that was featuring Betty Davis. Ah. Can you imagine Betty Davis sitting in the back of my father's classic 300 SL Mercedes for one of the laughing episodes? And I found a treasure trove of slides of behind the scenes at that laughing episode. And, you know, it included shots of young Robin Williams, who I would later go on and work with as the genie in Aladdin. Yeah, he was on the uh, 1977 one that they and he was totally unknown then. Yeah. You know, talk about in my book, Part of the Magic, I talk about those invisible threads. And that's what started to happen when I was thinking about Hanna-Barbera. Those invisible threads do really tie me to Hanna-Barbera as well, as you pointed out at the beginning. I, I don't live that far. I live within walking distance of the old building. So it's very special to me. You mentioned Ideal, and Ideal had some creative impact on the series as well, because the Flintstones had a son originally and there were model sheets of this fred jr and there were the cave kids golden books and stuff but when it came to having wilma who was the very first cartoon character expecting at least on american television i don't know about international shows but the first animated pregnant character was wilma when she gave birth they were thinking it was going to be a boy and ideal said a girl is going to be a much more popular toy 
And that's still the case because when you think about the films and the shows that you see now and you wonder, well, why are they doing this? Why are they taking this approach and all that? Sometimes the toy may not be the total creative component, but is certainly an influence on those choices. It is. And you mentioned McGilla Gorilla. Both McGilla Gorilla and Peter Potamus were made for ideal toys, and they mention them in the titles. Right. The McGilla Gorilla Show, presented by Ideal Toys. They're wonderful toys. They're ideal. (laughs) Get it? I would remember seeing early prototypes of things around the house, but they didn't hold the value that they would hold today. I wish I still had them all, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, especially in the boxes and all of that. We had Mousetrap in the big, white, gigantic box before they made the boxes smaller and all. Toys used to come in huge Huge packages. boxes, yes, that's right. I love Mr. Machine. I don't know if you remember Mr. Machine. You know what? My brother wanted Mr. Machine when we were kids, and he didn't get one because my mom said, oh, you'll take it apart, you'll lose the pieces. Along the ground and round and round and round. You can pick him apart, every gear and nut, but you can put him together and build him up. Wind him. Go on. You can't break the spring, but listen. Hear him ring. Here he comes. Here he comes. Greatest toy you've ever seen. And his name is Mr. Machine. He is real. He is real. And for you, he's a real. And his name is Mr. Machine. Mr. Machine. I finally, years later, got a Mr. Machine for him when it came back and it didn't have detachable pieces. My dad also went on to work at Aurora, Aurora Toys and Mm -hmm. little HO race cars and things like that. Nowadays, merchandising has reached such a peak that even back then, I don't think, even though Hanna-Barbera toys were at one point on the par with Disney character things, they scratched the surface with something like Wacky Races. There should have been a whole line of those toys. And I don't recall yes. what they were because I would have bought yeah. them. No, that's absolutely right. I think that was something that was on my dad's radar for sure. But it has you know? a lot to do with how long a series runs, what the ratings are. Sometimes they wait to see if it's going to be a big thing. My dad used to go and it was a big deal. I assume they still do it, but I don't know this. Going to the toy show in New York? Yeah, they still have them. Yeah. Okay. Because that was also a place where a lot of creators and inventors would meet and brand and marketing people, et cetera, over the years. That was a, uh, a regular thing, dad going to the toy show. But there was also something that arrived on shelves in 1965 that you weren't aware of until I gave you a copy of it, and that was on Hanna-Barbera Records, Wilma Flintstone Tells the Story of Bambi. Do you know, how did that even come about? Why on earth would that have happened? I mean, I treasure it. I love it. I have it actually hanging on my wall in my office, but it just seems like, really? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is going to be detailed in my book, Hanna-Barbera, The Recorded History from Modern Stone Age to Meddling Kids. It's going to be detailed because Hanna-Barbera's work in recordings goes almost back to the beginning of their partnership and continues today with their characters. And at one point, for about two, two and a half years, they had a children's line and they had a pop and general line. The children's was called the cartoon series. And what they did was, I think they looked at what was selling already and found a way to Hanna-Barbera-ize it or modernize it or both. Sometimes they did a serious adaptation of a fairy tale. Sometimes they did a kind of a wacky, groovy version like the Cinderella album with Mr. Jinx, Pixie and Dixie. So they obviously looked at the Bambi soundtrack was 
selling well. They looked at what Disney mostly was selling, but RCA Camden and Columbia Harmony and all the other labels, what are they selling that we can give a twist to? So Bambi was a popular title. It had been reissued in this. I first saw it in the 60s. And so who better to tell the story than Wilma? And the premise is that Hanna-Barbera played fast and loose with character history. So in this thing, Fred brings home Dino and the kids are playing a little too rough with him. And he's just a puppy. So Wilma says, it's time for me to sit down and tell them about a little deer who lived in the forest to teach them about compassion and caring for animals and for others. Bam, bam. It's not nice to treat Dino like that. I'm sure he didn't mean to, Wilma. Bam, bam's kind of young, you know. I know. But now is as good a time as any to teach Pebbles and Bam Bam how to treat a pet. But how are you going to teach kids their age about kindness? Well, Fred, I think the best way would be to tell them a story about a little deer named Bambi. Oh, yeah. And the entire album at that point becomes a very tender and warm and very serious retelling of Bambi based on the Salton book. I just thought, oh, I have to give you a copy of this. You oh, no, I, I treasure it. I mean, I treasure it. Now, that the way that you describe it, I don't know that you naturally put those thoughts together. You know, I used to spend a lot of time in record stores, and I think if I had seen that in the rack, I wouldn't have a clue as to what you're saying that that album is about. You know what I mean? It just seems odd. It's like, Wilma Flintstone, wow, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but what's interesting about that cartoon series is that they also were premiering in the era of the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the rising appeal of pop records to children. The children's record industry was changing, and in a year there would be the Monkees. And so what Hanna-Barbera did that no other label did in 65, except for a couple of Beatles spoofs, you know, like with the Chipmunks, and there were a handful of those, they did pop and folk and garage band and surf sounding songs, which were kind of surprising back then to hear. And the Bambi album opens with this sort of the Flintstones, the Flintstones, the Flintstones, the Flintstones. They're these sort of groovy songs. It was very innovative, and that was kind of your job when you worked at Disneyland Records, was to take it into a new era of popular music. Well, with Disneyland Records, yes. My first job was copyright assistant in music publishing. That was my focus. And, you know, if you think about it, the approach with Disney was that the Disney characters, Mickey, Goofy, Donald, Daisy, and Minnie, were the recording artists. So we, we would try to find songs that they could sing or be a part of. And Hanna-Barbera did lead the way in terms of that idea or that notion of what's happening now, what's contemporary now. Um, one of the first albums that I worked on was Mousercise, you know, which was at the during the time of the exercise craze with Jane right. Fonda and the rest of And so they would look at and consider anything that was going on in the world that was popular and then see if there was a way in or a fit or a, a way to approach it to put their own spin on it. I mean, people have been doing that since the beginning of time. 
Yeah. But uh, I think you're right. I think Hanna-Barbera was ahead of its time in many ways. I don't know that they were as successful. Well, there were a lot of, <laughs> that's in the book too. It's what it could have been so much, but it was always a sense of timing. Like they had a group, the five Americans, and right after they changed contracts, Western Union was a huge hit, but it wasn't on their label. They just missed it. A lot of it was timing. Had they stayed in business longer, I think maybe the Taft purchase may have had something to do with it. The other thing was that they distributed them themselves. So they had very limited. That's why they became the holy grails throughout the 60s and 70s until eBay. They became so hard to find because they weren't everywhere. And so that was another reason they didn't stay around long enough. And they were very much made to be contemporary at the time. Disney did a Jungle Book album two years later that had a pop sound. Um, They were starting to do that. And of course, the Buena Vista label had a net and all that, but stuff that was aimed specifically at kids had not yet done that. And in a way, when you were working on what you were working on, it still hadn't done it quite so up to the time because the Totally Mini album was right on the crest of the wave. Yes, and the funny thing about that was uh, something that, again, I talk about in my book, Part of the Magic, my meeting Michael Jackson. And part of the conversation that I had with him was the discussion about how the younger brothers and sisters of his core fan base wanted music that sounded as cool as him, Mm -hmm. you know, and what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And that was really the challenge. And I said to him, point blank, I said, you make my job really hard, to which he laughed and almost fell off the seat because <laughs> he laughed so hard because it was true because, yes, younger brothers and sisters want cool music just like, you know, that's on the radio or that their, you know, older siblings are listening to. You're 100% right. I, I think, though, that part of it is, too, is marketing and how to approach the marketing. And I mm-hmm. just don't know that Hanna-Barbera did that as successfully. They didn't have the reach that Disney had being Disney with the name. Hanna-Barbera was not a household name then. You know, it was still a very new company. People knew the characters, but the name wasn't out there as much. They were getting it out there. So Disney was preeminent. And then you had major labels like RCA and Columbia and DECA that were competing. So it was a crowded marketplace. Children's records were probably a tenth of the industry, but that's a lot of records in every single store. Plus, they sold records in grocery stores and in toy departments. So they were kind of everywhere. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because... Those are who are familiar with the Hanna-Barbera records and wondering about the casting and about how they were produced as stories using the music that they used. There is a parallel in what you did doing the read-alongs because you did oh, a yeah. ton of them. And sometimes you could get like a member of the original cast, but quite often you would cast actors who had the skill to sound like them. Yeah, sound-alikes, but actually I just remember there were just certain voice actors of the day who were just brilliant at narration and clarity. I just remember that, yeah, sound-alikes 
but that's also a slippery slope because you know you have people who really are in love love and know those voices and you don't want to give them something that doesn't sound as good or feel as authentic so i think there's finding that balance in some instances yes the casting was imitative but i think that we really did our best especially with the read-along stories like for example i worked on et as told by gertie yeah well gertie was drew barrymore in the film and so we had young Drew come into the studio and she read a script that was written by Jim Magon, uh, who was my boss at the time and who wrote a lot of those story records, knew how to do them really well. Steven Spielberg came in and directed the session with Drew. Hi, I'm Gertie, and I'm going to tell you the story of E.T. You'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. That was really cool. Did it help to sell more records? Probably. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, she was on the cover and, and E.T. was very hot. See, that's another thing that Disney went into during the time you were there is they licensed outside things. In fact, the first George Lucas co-productions at the Disney Studios were not the Star Tours attraction and not the acquisition of Lucasfilm, but the read-along Disneyland Vista records of Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. That was the first time that he well, that's Disney. You know, again, giving credit where it's due. Gary Kreisel, who was the head of the Disney record label, was very savvy in recognizing that to continue the read-along book and story record business, you know, at that point, it was to look at maybe licensing outside family entertainment and children's properties. And so Gary, he forged the relationship with George Lucas and Lucasfilm and Steven Spielberg and Amblin. And by the way, if you think about it, they were happy to go into business with Disney because they were making a deal to license their stories uh, to the world's largest children's record label, which is what Disney was at the time and probably is still is. It made a lot of sense for George Lucas to say, I'm not going to go into the children's record business, but here. He had dabbled in it on LPs because there was a story of Star Wars and a story of well, the Adventures of Luke, but not to the level that Disney was doing it. Well, Michael Jackson actually did a, yes. a recording of <clears throat> E.T. Yes. Uh, and so we were challenged by how do we make something that's going to be you know, that appealed to maybe a different audience. And we went for the core basic children's record audience. And so the story of E.T. is told by Gertie made a lot of sense. And now, folks, please stay with us for part two of our chat with Bambi Moe as she describes how a record is actually made. And we discuss the only Disney Hanna-Barbera read-along recording ever created. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.